If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them this evening to Amos 7. There we go, find the way there myself. The legacy of the truth teller. In Amos 7, we have witnessed Amos come outside of the prophetic declarations that he has been making and give us uh, some narrative surrounding the circumstances that Amos was experiencing in his day. Last time we considered three visions that Amos saw, wherein Amos the prophet saw tremendous destruction in Israel's future. And he wept for Israel in that day, and he interceded to God for mercy, and mercy was given. As Amos saw the grasshoppers devour the latter harvest after the king's mowing, and Amos said, Israel is small, show mercy, and God showed mercy. Then Amos saw a vision of fire consuming the land, and Amos said, God, Israel is small. How can they possibly survive? If you do this to them, show mercy. And God showed mercy. And then finally, he saw that third vision where God says that he will drop a plumb line, a vision of a man holding a plumb line against a wall. And God says, there's coming a day when I will drop that plumb line and I will not pass by Israel again. The idea there being that he will not overlook. He will not again show mercy. But in the day that he drops that plumb line, that measuring stick of his righteousness against the nation of Israel, they will either measure up or they will be judged. And this week we, we remain outside of prophetic declarations and connected to the narrative of this day that Amos is in. And in it we, we have a narrative which is actually quite familiar both within the biblical record and as we're going to see um, today, not just within the biblical record, but with many of you as well, perhaps as it relates to Amos, this is one of the, the, the uh, passages that you are more familiar with. So we'll read the narrative and then we'll, we'll connect it to some truths which are also quite familiar. And, you know, my Sunday school folks got a, a sneak preview of it this morning. In Amos chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says this. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. We're introduced here to a man. That man's name is Amaziah. He's a priest there in Bethel. Recall that Bethel has been one of the primary places where God has both um, spoken against and where God, through Amos, has told the nation that they should not flee in times of judgment or times of trouble. That Bethel would not save them. That Bethel would be destroyed with them. And the idea of using Bethel, along with Gilgal and Dan, is that these were places where there were, uh, they were religious centers. So the idea being that God says, don't run to your false religious systems for comfort in the day that I judge you because I'm not there. I'm not in Bethel. I'm not in Gilgal. They had abandoned the Lord a long time ago because of their false teachings. Bethel was, however, the primary place of religious worship in Israel in this day. And that was the point. This was the focus, that the religious devotion of Israel was perverse, was compromised, and would help them in no way in the day of judgment. So Amaziah is a priest of Bethel. 
Naturally, we would expect then Amos' words to be uh, somewhat personal to him. A personal affront, perhaps, to him. A personal affront to his vocation. Amos is there in Bethel. And he is crying out. And he's telling the people that they will be judged. And he's telling the people that they are outside of God's will. Well, Amaziah wasn't telling the people that. Amaziah didn't have a problem with the way the people were acting. He didn't have a problem with the wealthy and how they consumed the poor. He didn't have a problem with the injustice in the land. The people were coming and they were giving their tithes and they were doing their sacrifices and it was all good for Amaziah. And so Amaziah is affronted. He's offended. He's upset about Amos' words. And so the first thing that we see Amaziah do is send a message to the king. This is Jeroboam II, not the original Jeroboam. Uh, That guy was a long time ago. But this is Jeroboam II. And his message is that Amos has conspired against the king through his words, and the land is not able to bear those words. Then he recounts what he says Amos has been saying, namely that Jeroboam would die by the sword and that Israel would be led away captive. Now, this is sort of true, but if we may say it this way, this is a politician's way of describing Amos' message. Amos says, the Lord will judge and it's going to be destruction. Amaziah says, Jeroboam, he's saying, you're going to die, and in your day, Israel's going to go into captivity. Israel did not go into captivity in Jeroboam's day. And Jeroboam did not die by the sword. That's not what Amos was saying. Amos was saying, the Lord will judge. But in the typical fashion of the politician, right, he personalizes the message and sensationalizes the message to the extent that he needs to in order to get the desired effect. Namely, in this case, Amos needs to go and Jeroboam needs to be personally affronted by what Amos is saying so that Amos will go. So Amos had warned the nation that the land would be carried away captive and he had indeed warned them in that day that the king would not be spared, right? That the wealthy would not be spared in the day that the Lord judges. But nowhere did Amos state that these things would inevitably happen in Jeroboam's day. And we find, as I've said, that they do not happen in Jeroboam's day. So Amaziah is deeply invested in getting Amos to stop saying what he's saying. He personalizes these offenses to the king, hoping that this will aid him in his efforts to silence Amos. So the king hears from Amaziah that Amos is prophesying these things, and Amaziah's assessment is not only that he's prophesying against the king in in sort of treasonous fashion, right? How can I find something that will make the king say this is against the law, right? Well, make it against Jeroboam himself. Treason, insubordination, whatever it might be, right? But then he also says, and, and in a sense this is probably quite true, that the nation could not bear his words. That this message was deeply troubling the people and it was causing society to struggle to function effectively because of said message. And again, in one sense, this is a legitimate critique. History has recorded innumerable times where men's words have been able to impact all of society. And indeed, we know that when, a society, when God sends a messenger to deliver a message and society hears that message, that, that the combination of the man's uh, delivery and the empowering of the Holy Spirit behind his message because God sent him has a noticeable effect on society. But here's the thing about it. 
The reason why society would not be able to bear those words was not because the words were bad, but because society had hardened themselves against them. If society were to relent and repent, then those words would become life to them. They are only unbearable to those whose hearts are hard. They are only unbearable to those who are in rebellion. But this is Amaziah's charge against Amos. So he appeals to the king. Now, as we continue, it appears that he doesn't wait for a response. He tells the king these things, whether the king cannot be bothered, or whether the king hasn't heard yet, or whether the king is deciding what to do, or, or whether the king just says, well, Amaziah, you do what you think is best. Amaziah then continues to engage directly with the prophet. And so as we read, we, we read this confrontation between Amaziah and the prophet. Verses 12 and 13. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go. Flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. So Amaziah tells Amos to take his message elsewhere. Go into Judah, eat there, prophesy there. You're not welcome here. That it's not for him to take these words of judgment into the king's chapel. It's not for him to take these words of judgment into the court of the religious center of Israel. So whereas Amos is speaking to the nation unto the end that they might hear and repent and be delivered from this judgment, though this is for Amos not a message of anger or of hatred, but a message of mercy and deliverance, a plea for the people of God to return to Him for mercy. In the eyes of the hard-hearted, it is not a plea unto mercy, is it? In the eyes of the hard-hearted, such truth will always be a personal attack. In the ears of the hard-hearted, in the soul of the hard-hearted, the words of truth will always come across as a personal attack. It doesn't matter if you couch those words in loving language. It, it will always come across as a personal attack. Because what you are doing is you are challenging the very fibers of what they are trusting in, of the manner of their life, of, of the essence of their living. Because their hearts are hard. Amaziah was a priest at Bethel, but he was not a servant of the Lord. He was a priest at Bethel, but he was not a servant of the people. He may be a servant of the king. He was certainly a servant of himself, of his flesh, ultimately a servant of his father, the devil. And if that phrase sounds familiar, it connects us to some New Testament ideas that we'll talk about in a little bit. But Amaziah is offended and he's concerned because at the, at worst, at best, Amos' message is troubling the people and causing them to not be able to feel comfortable in the worship system that they're engaged in and the manner in which they're living their lives. At worst, Amos' message is a direct threat to his well-being because if these people repent and come back to Jehovah, then he's out of a job. So he tells them to stop speaking. 
he characterizes Amos as a threat, not just to him, but to the king and to the kingdom itself. And just for the record, if you find that the truths of God's word ever become a threat to who you are or what you're doing, you're not in a good place. That's where Amaziah found himself on this day. We read Amos' response then in verses 14 and 15 of Amos 7. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Well, Amos responds um, quite matter-of-factly. Amaziah's claims made it sound like Amos was up there in Bethel to proclaim destruction on the nation because it's what he wanted to do. Because he was uh, a, 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 a rabble-rouser. Because he was there to create conflict, to cause, to stir up trouble. Uh, he was there as a troublemaker. Amos says, I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. I didn't choose to do this in this sense. See, that's not how truth-telling works, is it, Christian? We don't tell the truth because we want to stand before people that have no interest in what we're saying and tell them things that they don't want to hear to the extent that they don't like us anymore. That's not what any of us want to do. No truth-teller wants to get up and say these things that nobody wants to hear because he wants to. No truth-teller gets excited about the prospect of coming into a group of men and women and telling them that their choices or their manner of living or their entire direction is pointing to destruction and judgment. Nobody wants to do that. Amos wasn't a vocational priest or a vocational prophet. He wasn't a prophet or even the son of a prophet. He wasn't among the schools of the prophets. He wasn't trained in this stuff. He didn't uh, grow up seeing his dad uh, uh, preaching fiery sermons and now it's his turn to preach fiery sermons because that's just, that's just what we do in the Amos family. That's not how it worked. Amos was a herdman. He was a picker of sycamore fruit. He was following the flock one day in Judah, not even in Israel, and God told Amos, go up there and say these things to these people in this time. And it wasn't so that Amos could become some sort of great judge of the people so he could stand in his ivory tower and look down and tell the people how good he is and how bad they are. It was, a deliver, it was a, to, for Amos to go and to deliver a message of mercy, to extend a hand of mercy to a people who were ripe for judgment. See, truth-telling doesn't need trained men. You don't need to be a trained man to be a truth-teller. Truth-telling needs obedient men. Truth-telling needs courageous men. Truth-telling needs yielded men. Amos was a herdman. He's a gatherer of sycamore fruit. But he was something else as well. Amos was a man who was willing, who was listening. So as he followed the flock, the Lord spoke to that man 
said, go prophesy unto my people Israel. This people was not Amos' people. In the most formal sense of the word, yes. The connection between the Judites and the Israelites was strong. But these were not his people formally. They were the tribes which had split from David. They were the people who had set up another king with another worship system. Their destruction was not the destruction of his own city. Their destruction was not the destruction of his temple. Their destruction was not the destruction of his kingdom. Israel and Judah would war back and forth many times before and after his days. He had no dog in this fight except for this, that he was a willing man there was a truth that needed to be told and he was the one that God chose to do it. That was the point. He had no personal grievance against Israel as far as we know. He didn't hate them as far as we know. He didn't look down on them as far as we know. But he was told by God to go extend a hand of mercy by proclaiming God's anger and judgment until the end that they might have that mercy. Amos obeyed. But not only did he obey, but we see at the beginning of this chapter, he didn't just obey. He was not like Jonah, who when God says, go deliver a message to those people in Nineveh, the first thing Jonah said is, nah, uh and he ran the other way, and he explains later on exactly why he did that. He says, God, the reason why I ran the other way is because I knew that if I proclaim this message of judgment, they might just repent. See, Jonah didn't want them to hear the message of judgment, the message of repentance, because they might repent. Jonah was a man who did not like Nineveh. Jonah was a man who did not want to see Nineveh repent. So Jonah ran the other way, and then when that didn't work, he begrudgingly gave the message, he, well, I wouldn't say that. He, he did repent, and he went, and he willingly gave that message. Then he pouted about it afterwards that they actually repented. That was not Amos. Instead, in Amos chapter 7, what did we find Amos doing? Amos sees a vision of the, the, the direct judgment of, of Israel and he begs God for mercy upon this people. This is not a man who is just waiting to see Israel burn. This is a man who wanted to see Israel do right. This is the love of the truth teller. Amos reached out to this people in love. Perhaps not the love of a man who was reaching out to his own people. Perhaps not the love of a man who had a deep personal stake in the people's reception of the message. Perhaps not the love of even reaching out to a brother or a sister. But the love of one who knew the truth, who knew the blessings that come from the truth, but we never can know the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. That's what we just sang. He knew the power of truth. He knew God's mercy. And he saw a people standing outside of that truth and outside of that blessing and outside of that power and outside of that mercy and he wanted it for them. He wanted that mercy for them. He wanted that blessing for them. And what does a man do when he sees people outside of that blessing and he wants it for them? He tells them the truth. There's no other way. 
Christian than to tell them the truth. Not because you want to see them burn. If you want to see them burn, don't tell them anything. You tell them the truth because you don't want to see them burn. See, and this is the funny thing about the truth teller. The hard-hearted hears the truth teller and they say, you're judging me. What the truth teller is actually doing is warning against God's judgments. What the truth teller is actually doing is pleading with them to align and to listen so that they won't receive those things. The truth teller is doing what he's doing explicitly because he loves them. Now, the hard-hearted will never see it that way. They will see it as attack. They will see it as judgment. They will see it as hatred. They always will. That's not why Amos was there. The hard-hearted hear judgmentalism. They hear anger when the truth teller stands up to proclaim God's word. But the truth teller is doing what he's doing motivated by two things. First, obedience. Second, love. Compassion. A desire that those whose eyes are closed might be opened. Those whose ears are stopped might hear. But though the truth teller might speak in love and compassion, apart from judgmentalism or anger, oftentimes the message he brings is one of God's anger, isn't it? One of God's judgment. But it must be told. Why would a man change his ways if he does not know what he's doing is wrong? How can a man avoid judgment if he is not aware that he rests under it? The people in Bethel, they were going and doing their sacrifices their religious observances. They were meeting up with Amaziah the priest and he was telling them that they were doing great and that Jehovah was very happy with them. How could they know if not for an Amos to come up, to leave the herds and to come out of Judah into Israel and proclaim to them the truth? So here Amos is. And he appeals to this reason. I wasn't a prophet, he says. I'm not doing this because I wanted to. I didn't grow up dreaming of this. I'm here because God told me to come here. And while I'm here, my heart reaches out to you. The heart of the prophet. doesn't matter if he's trained. doesn't matter if he's the son of a prophet. The man is a prophet. And the heart of the prophet is that heart of love and compassion. The heart of the truth teller is a heart of one who seeks to call people out of darkness into Christ's light. So we've seen him intercede. We've seen him cry out to the Lord for mercy. But pride. Pride just gets in the way so often, doesn't it? Hard hearts. Hard hearts get in the way so often, don't they? And when pride and hard hearts get involved, the truth teller becomes an attacker. The truth teller becomes a villain. The truth teller becomes the problem. And once the truth teller becomes the problem, he is rejected. The message is rejected. And the only thing left then is judgment. And judgment is actually what Amaziah hears next. Verses 16 and 17. Amos speaking to Amaziah still, he says, Now therefore hear the word of the Lord, thou 
sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, thy wife shall be an harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. The Lord speaks a word directly to Amaziah through Amos in this moment of controversy. The message of God to Amaziah directly is this. You say don't prophesy against Israel. You say don't drop a word against the house of Isaac. Once again, appealing to that deeper root in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord has a word for you, and the word is not pleasant. He says to Amaziah, your wife will be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be divided and you will die in a polluted land. Now, the idea of his wife being a harlot is not that she will willingly fall into ill repute, but rather that as the land is conquered, there will be no other way for her to sustain herself or to be able to function save to sell herself. That the children... That, that, that though Jeroboam will not fall by the sword in his day, yet he will live to see his children fall by the sword. Each element of this promise is that even if Jeroboam does not die by that sword, something Amaziah claimed that, uh, that, that Amos said, though Amos never said that, Amaziah's children certainly would. This false priest, perhaps, there's a little bit of muddiness as it relates to what Amos might be saying of the timetable, but it seems to me that what he's saying is that Amaziah will live to see these things. His land taken from him, his children killed, his wife defiled, and then he will die in a polluted land. It would not see repentance. And there's a reason why it would not see repentance. It would not see repentance because people like him encourage the people not to listen. The land would not see repentance and so it would not find mercy because of wicked men like him who stood between the prophet's message and the ears of the people. There will always be those men there will always be those men who, when the truth goes out, they will take that truth and they will pervert it, twist it, ruin it in the ears of those who look up to them and who look to them for guidance. Make no mistake, those people will be judged. Their day is coming. People in positions of leadership and respect who, far from humbling themselves in the day of confusion or conflict, harden their hearts and lead those who follow them to harden their hearts as well. Those who respect them. They lead them out of repentance and out of humility and into a false sense of security through empty religious devotion. And so Amos looks at Amaziah and says, you're going to get what you asked for. You will see the judgment that you are refusing to repent and so avoid in this day. He will see his family come to naught. But even more than that, he will see the results of his rebellion. 
as the land will be polluted in the time of his own death because of men like him who resist the call of God and lead others to do so as well. And this is what God thinks of the false priest. This judgment is extremely severe. And the severity of the judgment should help us understand the severity of this man's offense in the eyes of God. And so it is that we draw out some lessons this evening from this passage of Scripture. First, I want to draw out some lessons from Amaziah, then I want to draw out some lessons from Amos. Amaziah is the prototype of the hard-hearted man. He's also the prototype of the false leader, the false teacher, the false priest. I'm not going to talk about him as the prototype of the false teacher. I might go there next week. I haven't debated. I'm debating yet whether I want to do that or not. I was not thinking about it, and then I feel like the Lord may want me to go there. So we might talk next week about the false teacher. But we are going to talk about him as the hard-hearted man this evening. A man who, upon hearing the word of God, becomes angry and becomes offended. And so attacks the messenger, hates the messenger, silences the messenger in a direct effort to silence the message. This has been the reaction of hard-hearted men since the very beginning, going all the way back to Cain. Recall when we were in 1 John, our 1 John series, we read this about Cain. 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12. This is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain hated his brother and he slew his brother. But here's the thing. Cain actually did not slay his brother because of who Abel was himself. Not because of what Abel did specifically. He killed Abel because Abel's works stood in contrast to his own. He killed Abel because when he saw Abel, Abel's good works stood in contrast to his wicked works and Abel's, he saw Abel's good works as being the thing which made his works evil. In the eyes of, of, of everyone, Cain included, Abel's mere existence and the good works and the faith of Abel was a condemnation of him. And so he hated Abel, not because they had a personality conflict, he hated Abel, not because uh, Abel had more money than him or more possessions than him. He hated Abel because Abel's mere truth-telling existence condemned his own wickedness. This is the legacy of the hard-hearted man. Cain felt the guilt and the shame of his evil works. And his lying heart told him that the problem was not actually the evil works. His works were fine. The problem was this guy's works. And if I could just make that guy go away, then I'll feel better about what I'm doing. And that's the legacy of the hard-hearted man. The hard-hearted man, because his heart is hard and is deceitful, is convinced by his heart that the problem is not their doing. The problem is those who don't accept it, who don't agree with it, or who are saying that it is wrong in agreement with the Word of God. And their hard and wicked and deceitful heart says, if only I can make that man go away, if only the message can go away, if only the example can go away, then so too will go away my guilt. So too will go away my shame. And that's a lie. 
It does not work that way. But the hard and deceitful heart will always convince the hard-hearted man of this thing. This is the human heart. This is how the hard-hearted react to being around the righteous. The soft heart, the willing heart, will see the righteous, will see their works and will be drawn to those works and will say, I am in sin. And though these men are telling the truth and they're living the truth and the problem is not them, the problem is me and they will be drawn to the truth. That's what the soft-hearted man does. But the hard-hearted man, he will see those righteous works And when he feels the guilt and shame of his own wickedness, he will blame the righteous man. He will blame the truth teller. Listening to the lie of his own heart that if it were not for that truth teller, if it were not for that righteous man, then they would be able to do their evil works and there would be no guilt or shame in them. And again, we know that that is a lie that the guilt and the shame of sin rests upon humanity well apart from the truth teller. It rests upon them intrinsically because the wages of sin is death. But the hard-hearted man has been deceived. He's listened to his heart, which Jeremiah 17.9 says is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And his lying heart has assured him that the problem is not him, The problem is not that he has yielded to his own impulses. The problem is not his own uncleanness, but rather those who proclaim that uncleanness, those who remind him that God has a standard, those that that hold themselves accountable to that standard and remind him that he is accountable to that standard and that he has fallen short of that standard. To this end, Amaziah follows in the footsteps of Cain, in the footsteps of Canaan, in the footsteps of Esau, In the footsteps of every man who, seeing the truth, rejects the truth and hates those who bring it. And to this end, Amaziah becomes the father of those who would and continue to this day to do the same. In the days of Jesus, Jesus spoke often of this idea. My favorite of those passages is John 15. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is John 15. Jesus said this in verses 22 to 25. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works that which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Jesus was hated and rejected for the same reason Abel was hated and rejected in his own day. Same reason Noah was hated and rejected. The same reason Amos was being hated and rejected. Because in coming and speaking to men about their sin, these men who were content in their own sinful ways saw their sin for what it was. When a truth teller gets up and he shines the light of truth into the hearts of darkness, they are exposed. Before that, they could live in their sin without a whole lot of shame and guilt. Now, it was still there. But they were not just in darkness themselves, but they were enveloped in so much darkness that they had very little light exposing them into guilt and shame. But then the truth teller comes. 
And when that truth teller comes and shines that light, their darkness is exposed. And so they had that sin. They feel the weight of that sin. They see their sin. They have no cloak for their sin. And this causes the hard-hearted man not to hate the sin, not to repent, but to hate the messenger, to hate the light, to hate the light shiner. And in John 15, Jesus is warning his followers that this is so. Because even unto this day, it is still that way, is it not? That Christians around the world for the last 2,000 years have been hated and have been silenced and have been killed. And for this reason, because they have told the truth into a world of darkness. Their great sin has been that they are truth tellers. Their deeds were righteous in the midst of a generation whose deeds were evil. And you and I would do well to notice this, Christian. Because the United States is fast becoming a hard-hearted society. The United States is fast becoming a society that regards the problems within it not to be their sins, their choices, their unrighteousness, their wickedness, their perversions, and their debaucheries, but rather those in society who live apart from those sins. Not to be their wicked works, but rather the truth-tellers that are among them. And when this happens in society, there are only a few possible responses that that society can have. First, the truth-teller, when he starts to receive such anger against him, self-censors. He silences his mouth and he stops telling the truth. And he says, I guess we're just going to let everyone do what everyone's going to do. And they're going to do their thing and we're going to do our thing. And as long as they leave us alone, it's fine. Except it never works that way. Because even if you stop telling the truth, if you're living the truth, you become a problem. You become a problem because your light is still shining. And as long as you exist in society, you become a problem to a society of hard-hearted men. Second, the truth-teller proclaims his message. The people hear the truth-teller's message. They yield, they humble their hearts before the Lord, and they repent of their wickedness. That's the second possible way that this could go. The first way, self-censorship. Self-censorship, hoping that we can all just go along to get along, but eventually that will crumble. The second way, is that the truth teller tells his truth and the people listen and they humble themselves and they repent. Or the third way. The truth teller becomes society's enemy and is ultimately silenced. Now of these options, the follower of Christ must not self-censor. Cannot self-censor. Many of us do, but it's inconsistent with our commission. And the reason why it's inconsistent with our commission is because the essence of the Christian life is that we go and tell. The essence of the Christian life is that we call people out of darkness into His marvelous light. The essence of the Christian life is that we love men. And how can we love them if we are 
closing our mouths and letting them go into a sinner's hell without any sort of warning. And so it's incompatible. It's inconsistent with the Christian life for us to self-censor. How can I be salt? How can I be light if I am not salt and light? How can I do as Christ has asked us to do if I am not on a candlestick that I may give light to all that are in the house? So that option doesn't really work. And as I said, even if you try, society will find you out. So the second option. Well, this is the one we all desire, right? You and I would tell the truth. It would pierce the hearts of the hearer. And there would be repentance. This has happened in history. And it can happen again. Never lose the hope that it can happen again. Because it can. It absolutely can. And by God's grace, it will. But here's the thing about that. The church has been in existence for 2,000 years now. We trace a few thousand years back behind that, beyond that as we go through the Old Testament. Think through this with me. How many of the Old Testament prophets saw revival in their day? Think through this with me. How many people did Jesus actually see one to his cause in his day? Now we see a working in the time of the church. We see the world turned upside down. We see the multitudes in that day. We see other times in history. We see great awakenings. We see movements of the Lord. We see these things happen. And yet, how many truth-tellers have come and gone between them? Now, I'm not trying to make us nihilistic this evening. I'm not trying to put us into a place of hopelessness. But I do want to put us in the place of realism. The apostles saw great works. How many of the apostles were not martyred? Very few. The truth-teller by and large, will, will fall into category three. He will become the enemy in society unto the end that he is sought out and he is silenced. This was the fate of most of the prophets. This was the fate of our Savior. This was the fate of most of the apostles. This has been the fate of generations of Christians, many even in this day, primarily in other countries. And again, at this point, I wanted to do a separate point about Amaziah is the false prophet. I may cover that next week, or I may just let that lie. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to belabor that point except to remind us that God will judge those who draw others away from the truth. And that judgment will be dramatic, and that judgment will be terrifying, and God help that false teacher. God help that man who draws others away from the truth in his day. God help the deceiver. God help the evangelist of evil. Because Amaziah, like Amaziah in Amos' day, there's coming a day where they will stand before the throne of Almighty God and it will be a day of judgment and of terror for them. 
But the lesson that we learn from Amaziah is that Amaziah is what we should typically expect to find when we become a truth teller. Hard-hearted men who see you as their enemy. Not reaching out to them in love and compassion that they might seek unto mercy and deliverance. The vast majority of men will see you as a truth teller, as one to be silenced, as a problem. And we need to know that. And that leads us from the lessons of Amaziah into the lessons of Amos. As Amaziah is well representative of the hardness of the human heart in the face of God's messenger, Amos, even among many of the truth-tellers in Scripture, holds somewhat of a special place. We might presume that Amos was not the only prophet who was called from an otherwise simple, maybe even obscure existence to minister the message of God and to be indelibly written into the pages of history. But Amos is conspicuous in the fact that he was seeking no ministry of a prophet. He didn't ask for it. Nothing implies he wanted it. Amos was simply a man who was willing and obedient. And this drew Amos from being a herdman and a picker of sycamore fruit to a hated man, to a man with a target on his back. It's very unlikely Amaziah would have disliked Amos the herdman. The problem with Amos was not Amos the herdman, not Amos the picker of sycamore fruit. The problem with Amos was... Amos, the truth teller. A truth which God had asked Amos to tell. And Amos, because he was willing and obedient, left his herds, left his sycamore fruit, and he went and he proclaimed it. And this did not make him a popular man. But it did make him an obedient man. Now let's think through our day and time. Not every man in the church is a gifted teacher. We know that. Not every man in the church is a gifted evangelist. We know that too. Not every man in the church is called unto you a unique ministry of truth-telling. But every man in the church is called to be a truth-teller. We know of Jesus' exhortations in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and to be light. Matthew 5, 13 to 16, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast down and trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father, excuse me, which is in heaven. Jesus calls us to shine our light before the world. We know of the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. 
commissioning his followers to go and to make disciples. First, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, the idea of bringing them to the faith, a public profession of their faith, and then teaching them to observe all of the commandments of Christ, discipling them. We consider Paul's reminder in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We see that a man will never hear if someone does not tell him. We know that a man will never believe if he has not heard. How can he believe something that he has not even heard? But what I really want to draw your attention to this evening is for you to think about your part in the whole thing. You are not a vocational preacher. You are not a vocational evangelist. You are not a called prophet. Most of you are not called to be a vocational truth teller as your pastor is. But you are a person who has heard and received the truth. You are one who has taken up your cross to follow Christ. You are one who has been called unto salt and light. Now what? And the idea I'd like, to carry with, I'd like you to carry with you this evening is from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Unto what end, Christian? Unto what end is the church this called out assembly? that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church's purpose. The church has been set apart unto a purpose. There's a reason why Christ has left us here. You ever wonder why it is that when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, you didn't just poof, go to heaven? I mean, mission accomplished, right? Right? Why do you need to be here if the mission is accomplished? Mission is not accomplished, Christian. You have a reason to still be here after you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Yes, you are already predestined according to God's eternal purposes of His election of the church. When you accept Christ as your Savior, you step into that election and you are at that point predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be presented before the Lord, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Yes, of course, there's work to be done. Yes, of course, there's sanctification to happen. But all of that is while we wait. But why are we waiting? What are we doing here? Why do we exist? What are we doing here? We're here. Christ has left us here so that we can show forth His praises. The praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are here to be a witness of Christ's redemption. Of what He has done. For us. And make no mistake, in nearly every circumstance, this will not make you a popular person. We already read from John 15, verses 22 to 25, I believe. Let's go back a couple of verses. Jesus said this in verses 18 and 19. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world... But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world does not hate you because of your personality. 
And the word hate here may not necessarily mean that that's always going to be anger and loathing. And of course, the world here is not everyone, but those who have committed themselves to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those who are outside of Christ. Not trying to give you tinfoil hat conspiracy theories that everyone's out to get you or anything of the sort. But the idea here as Jesus presents it is this. You're not going to be a popular person if you live the light. The reason why is not because of you. As I said, it's not because of a personality conflict. It's not because you rub people the wrong way, although maybe you do, I don't know. But the problem is this. You are not of the world, but you are of Christ. You are one who is chosen out of the world. And the world hates you because you are of Christ. The world will not like your message because your message aligns with Christ. The world will not like the manner of your living because the manner of your living shines the light of Christ. Now, we've not lived in a society where it's necessarily been that way. We've not lived in a society for generations where we've had to fully relate to these verses. Because most people have been more than happy to accept, especially in rural America, to accept the way that is reflective at least a little bit of truth. That's changing, isn't it? Here's what we need to know. Here's what we do know. If you are living and telling the truth properly, not in judgment, not in some sort of holier-than-thou condemnation, not in pride. That's what I mean by telling the truth properly. That you're not going to stand above people. That you're not going to guilt and to shame people. That that's not your purpose. That you're not doing it in pride. You're not doing it in arrogance. You're not in an us-versus-them sort of mentality telling people truth. Uh, those people go and tell people the truth specifically so that they can know that they're going to burn. So that they can feel better about themselves because they can tell people that, they, that I know and I know you're going to burn and I'm looking forward to the day you're going to burn. That's, that's not it. But as Amos was, a man who loved his mission field, interceded and prayed for his mission field, loving them enough to tell them the truth that God had laid upon his heart to tell them. If you are telling the truth properly, then be confident in this, and this is important. Any anger, any rejection, any hatred toward you has nothing to do with you. If you're telling the truth properly, any anger, any hatred, any frustration, any rejection of you has everything to do with Christ. They hated him before they hated you. Know that they hate you because they are of this world and you are not of this world. And the world is what they love and the world is what they know and the world is what they want and the world is fine with any number of messengers or ways of life as long as all of those messengers and those ways of life are of this world. That's why at the end of the day, when we see all this stuff, progressive versus conservative, and all of, these, all, all of these divergences between people and this hatred of one toward another, 
It's always at what, what, once it's always once it's it, it's it's been processed and it's gone through the wash. It will always come down to this: the world versus the Christ follower. It will always come down to that. All of the other religious systems, all of the other truth claims, all of the other divergent ways of living, it's all going to be acceptable as long as it's of the world. The problem was when it's no longer of the world, but it's of Christ. The minute you live as who you are in Christ, the minute you tell as what you know in Christ... The minute you are living out and representing one who is chosen from out of this world, that is when the world will hate you. Because hard-hearted men hate truth. And Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is the problem, not you, Christian. It drives to the heart of a man and it makes him understand what he has spent his whole life hiding from. Sin Righteousness and judgment. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And when light shines into that darkness, their deeds are exposed. And the heart of man can only do two things when his deeds are exposed. He can humble himself or he can harden himself. He can humble himself and love or he can harden himself and hate. That's all he can do. Those are the only two responses on the table. But none of that should change what you and I are doing, should it? Our faithfulness, our obedience cannot be conditioned upon men's response. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. How can we then do anything other than tell but what we have seen and what we have heard? How can our hearts be so hard as to refuse to tell those in darkness that this light is there for them? And that's all Amos was. Amos was not a unique talent, as best we can tell. Amos was not a special man, as best we can tell, except in this. That Amos, among the men in Judah, was a man that was obedient enough to do what God said. That God looked at Judah and he didn't look at the priesthood and he didn't look at the school of the prophets, but he looked at a herdman in Tekoa. And he said to that man, will you tell my message? There are not many men who would be obedient, willing, and loving enough to do what Amos did in that time. And so it doesn't make him a special talent, but it does kind of make him a special man, doesn't it? A special kind of follower of God, at least, we can say it that way. Amos was. He was that kind of man. And you could be too. God looks for those men. Those men who will stand in the gap between him and judgment. God looks for those men who are willing and yielded. It's not for any man to know just how God will use the willing and the yielded man. And I am not here certainly saying that every single man in here is called to be that kind of man. We are all called to tell the truth, to live the truth, to not back down, to not be ashamed. Perhaps some in here God will call to something higher and greater. Others maybe not. And that's God's business, not mine and not yours. 
But we know this. We don't know how God will use the man whose heart is willing and yielded, but we do know this, that if God is going to use a man, that will be a willing and yielded man. This will be the kind of man that God will always use. So the question that we close then, are you that kind of man, that kind of woman? Not are you a special truth teller, are you willing and yielded? I'm not asking if you're talented. I'm not asking if you're skilled. I'm not asking if you're charismatic. I'm not asking if you're well spoken. I'm asking if you're willing and yielded. History tells us that what God is looking for is not the talented man. God's looking for a man with a heart of obedience, willingness. That's the kind of heart that God can use. That's the kind of man that God can use. To be a truth teller in this world. To be a light shiner in this world. And whether or not God will use any of us in that kind of spectacular way as he did Amos in his day. Although they did not listen to Amos either. Every single one of us has been called out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we might be that truth liver. So that we might be that truth teller. That light shiner. If you are part of Christ's church... God wants that from you. And I know I'm not telling you how to do that this evening. Because the how of that is not my point. Nor am I certain I would even have the answer. If any of you were to come up to me and say, Pastor, how? I don't know if I have that answer for you. I really don't. Except that I say this. If a man's heart is willing and obedient... God will do with that man what he will. And if you are willing and obedient, then when God does what he wants to do with you, you'll know it and you'll do it. So that's the question this evening. The legacy of the truth teller is not a pleasant legacy in the Bible. It's one that we need to be prepared for. It's one that we need to understand. It's one that we need to recognize we understand that it's about Christ, not about us. We understand that we're all called to be that light shiner, that truth teller. But all of it stems to this. Are you willing and obedient? That's what Amos was. May that be our hearts this evening as well. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.